The Keyboard Chronicles is proudly supported by Elk Electronic in Australia. Elk Electronic provides high quality service and repair of synthesizers and keyboards and also aims to encourage community interaction and learning through meetups and workshops. Find us on Facebook and Instagram or check out elkelectronic.com.au for more about us. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Hello and welcome to the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host, David Holloway, and it's great as always to be here with you. And I'm pretty pumped also to have Paul Bindig back in the chair after a few hectic weeks. How's things, Paul? Things are great and I missed you, David. It's been sad and, uh, you know, I don't like giving a sucker an even break either. So I'm back to make sure no one comes and steals my seat. Right. on the keyboard chronicles yeah. podcast which i no risk of that we couldn't do it without you so um but no, that's great okay what's that okay can't give a sucker an even break i like i've never heard that never before. give a sucker an even break never i like that that's going to be a part of my new life philosophy um <laughs> so um yeah no great to be have us both back and um we've got a, a another good guest this week so th- this episode we're talking to uh, Martin Rebelski. Now, Martin has a well-established career as the artist Rebelski doing his own solo work, which is well and truly worth uh, a check out, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But he's also a pivotal contributor to Doves, a, a very well-known um, UK-based band as touring keyboard player, and also um, has some fairly regular work with Peter Hook and the Light. So those that are New Order fans will well and truly know Peter Hook and his amazing bass player and he, his um, own band. Um, and also the iconic new wave band, um, Echo and the Bunnymen, um, who, who are still going very, very strong and releasing uh, new work, let alone their you know, great songs from the 80s and 90s. So you, you have someone overall that has some great thoughts on the gigging life and we'll think you enjoy this one a great deal. Martin, thank you for joining us on this sunny Monday in the UK. How are you going? Hey, good, thank you. Yeah, it's a beautiful sunny day here in Manchester, rarely. Nice to meet you though, David and Paul. Great to to have you here. So, um, yeah, we're really excited to talk to you about a bunch of things, but I thought we'd kick off just with the usual question about, tell us about Martin Rebelski and his early entry into music. What, What sort of got you into music in the first place? Wow, yeah. Music. Well, I didn't really have, I wasn't brought up in a particularly musical family. Uh, but my grandfather, he's a piano player. So he was, the, he was the main link, really. And he was in a, uh, it was before I was born, but he was in a big band and he used to do all that sort of stuff. But that was the only sort of link I had. And he had uh, a big Hammond organ in his front room. And so when I was a kid, I used to go around and see him play that you know, the, the double manual and the pedals and everything. And uh, I was just fascinated by the, the the technicalities of it all, really. And, yeah, so that was it. There was nobody else that was sort of remotely interested in music in my family apart from that. And, uh, he, yeah, I, I think he sort of, I can't quite recall, but, if it was me saying, oh, I want to get into it, or if, if it was him urging me, but he bought me this little 
mini keyed sort of uh, synth, if you can call it a synth, but Yamaha Porter Sound. Is it Porter Sound or yeah, Porter they were, they were, Yeah, they were Porter Sounds. No, they were, I think they might have had Porter Tones as well, but Porter Sounds were huge, yeah. It, yeah, that was my first keyboard too, Martin. Was it? <laughs> with a mini key? Yeah. yeah, with the tiny keys and the little inbuilt speakers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Inbuilt speakers, the brown, sort of horrific brown carry case. Bon Tempe sort of drum thing on the left. Yeah, but it's great. And uh, yeah, so I can't recall quite whether I wanted it or he just sort of surprised me on a birthday with it and and so I got into it and I was probably I don't know, nine or ten and he was like oh, I'll teach you and I'll teach you the, the correct way to do it all these scales and everything like that and, and just like any sort of impatient child petulant child in which I was as well I'll hold my hand up I was like yeah I kind of learned this strong song out of the charts you're like well you need to learn your scales first and uh, within a few months, I was just like, no, I'm not interested. I'm just completely bored of it. And he was frustrated with me and I was frustrated with him. And that was it. And I just put it down for years, actually. So, and that was it, just gathering dust in the corner of my room. And it was probably three or four years later when I was into skateboarding or whatever fad I was into at the time. My friend and we were, my close friend, Mark, we were, just, you know, with our skateboards walking around my neighborhood. And we, uh, in, in an open window, we heard somebody drumming. And I think it was my first experience of ever hearing anybody playing live drums. And he was playing, uh, what was it? Like the Amen break, you know, it's a really cool break. And we were just, stood there sort of transfixed with it all and it's sort of something you'd never do as an adult but as a kid we've we knocked on the door we, we must know more about this and what's going on and uh yeah it was somebody we knew from school actually and he invited us in and we just sat there and listened to him play for a bit playing like beatles tracks and all these sort of things and um and we were like wow let's start a band and I was like, oh, I could play keyboard. <laughs> you know, I haven't learned for sort of a couple of weeks. There's a few scales. And my friend was like, oh, I could play guitar. And he's probably equally as bad as I was. Um, and then I went home that night and I thought, well, I better learn how to play the keyboard, better I? Um, dug out this old little Porter sound keyboard. Yeah, and that was it, really. That, was, that got me into it. And so, so that was your first your sort of teenage band. And then um, mm. how, how did you progress from that to ending up, you know, doing it for a living? Ooh, how long have you gone? <laughs> Plenty of time. <laughs> it, well, I mean, that was funny because it, it was all really natural and organic after that. I mean, that was the beauty of it. Because, you know, when anything to do with music, I think somebody, if somebody's trying to say, oh, you know, you must do this, you must learn this scale, or anything in life, you're reluctant to go down that path. You want to find your own path. It's got to be fun. First of all, it's got to be fun, hasn't it? Hence the Spider-Man picture behind me. But um, yeah, that was sort of a moment of realization that, it's, oh, wow, this is fun. And this is, we're friends here. And wouldn't it be fun to learn those parts and, um, and start a band? And uh, with that little Porter sound keyboard or Porter tone, or whatever it was, 
yeah, I loved it. I really got my head around it. And I started listening to tracks on the radio then and just picking things up by ear. Um, just like really simple melodies. Mm. And realised that I had sort of an affinity for it and I could pick it up quicker than than what I expected. And uh, yeah, I had that keyboard for years. Years and years and years. And it's funny because uh, you say you had that keyboard as your first one, Paul. Yeah, I did, yeah. And it's, it was the same as kind of my entree into, I mean, it was, I was only a kid, but I had it for a long time. And, and just playing how to get different sounds out of it made it fun, as you say. So I, I'm wondering if that yeah. was kind of your experience too and what made you want to dive into it more and, and perhaps then take things on a more serious level. Well, yeah, it's funny because that keyboard, uh, you know, I really got into it after that. And I started working in a music shop, demonstrating pianos, and they had little synths in there. It was mainly little Casios that had inbuilt speakers and real cheap, sort of basically toys, sort of things you'd get in Radio Shack or something like that. And, um, but they had full-size keys, and I was getting to play on those every weekend on real pianos, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. But it, it, it put me in good stead to learn on that mini keys Yamaha because I was never fussy then about uh, keyboard beds or things. You know, you can get a lot of keyboard players now. Oh, I'm not playing that. That hasn't got this particular action on it or whatever. Um, and I was like, well, after that port turn, I'll play anything. And uh, yeah, it's, but when, working in that music shop, you'd see other synths come in. And occasionally they'd have second-hand synths and they're like Casio CZs, like the, the proper synths. But they were out of date by that time. They were sort of second-hand. But I was fascinated. that I was at pure synthesis, though. And so going from a little porter tone to actually something that's got uh, saw waves on it and uh, filters, I was like, wow, okay. This is what I want to do. Really interested in all this sort of stuff and all the technology side of it. Um, but, and I quickly outgrew the Yamaha and I wanted a big synth. I wanted, you know, all DX7s and things like that were out. And uh, I was like, oh, I want one of those. And, but my dad was like, well, they're expensive, all those synths, you know. Um, you're going to have to sort of put something towards it, pay half of it, prove that you want to do it. And it's not just a fad thing, like you're skateboarding or whatever. And if you contribute half, because you've got a job as well, I had a little weekend job and I had a paper round and all these sort of things. You contribute half, he'll contribute the other half. And so I was like, okay, great. This for about a hundred pounds, there was a full size Casio keyboard with speakers on it. It's still like a toy essentially, but I was like, okay, great. I'll, I'll get one of those then. But then of course, by the time I'd, I wasn't earning that much money. So by the time I'd, I could afford to pay for half of that, I'd already sort of outgrew it. And I was like, Ooh, I'm not sure I want that. I want, I want this one. I want this one. It was sort of, and so years went by <laughs> and I saw, the, you know, the Korg M1 and things like that, and I was like, which were really expensive. Since. But I was like, Oh my God, I'm, I really want a Korg M1. Uh, and then I heard about the W30 Roland. Don't know if you remember that. But I the had one of those we, too, would you believe? Did I had it? one of those. Wow. With, with, with the disc drive, with the yeah, the yeah, the boot, the three and a half inch floppy disks, and uh, yeah, and you were about to say the the prodigy used it, yeah. Painful that floppy disk drive, wasn't it? Because it was oh, that, wasn't yeah. it? 
the first thing you turned it on, it's like, right, install the floppy disk for the operating system. So then you're waiting a minute for the operating system to just boot up, which is if you're in a live setting in a gig and there's a power cut or something like that. It's like, oh dear, which happened. Uh, but yeah, what a great keyboard that was. But it's, that was really expensive. Um, and it took me years to get anywhere near as, uh, probably three or four years really to get a few hundred quid together. And my dad could see I was serious. So he was like, okay, look, you know, I'll put the rest of it. I can see you're serious. And I really did cherish that. It was a good comparing actually, because I mean, at the time I was just like, oh, just get at me, just get at me. But yeah, looking back, it was, it, it made me sort of, it was a valuable life lesson really. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, I, I, I'm assuming Martin, it wasn't as simple as you're working in a music store and some other band came in and you kicked off your career as a successful touring and original musician. No, <laughs> no that would be great. That would be the dream, wouldn't it? Just <laughs> playing some Debussy in the piano shop and like, Hey, come on the road with me. No, if only. No, I, uh, yeah, I went to music college. Um, in Manchester, which is where I am now. Uh, university here, there was, uh, this is going back quite a while now, but um, it's a music and music technology course. It was equal things. So I thought, sort of hedge my bets really. So, cause I was inter always interested in electronics and um, technology. And I thought, well, if for me, music's my main passion and if, but if that doesn't work out, you know, maybe it could be a sound engineer or producer or something like that or some kind of technician or at least I'll hedge my bets I'll have a backup plan mm -hmm. and so that's what I went to study both but my main passion was playing performing really so I went down that road which is which is good um I mean more of a case of just because I was living in a small town grew up in a small town where you're sort of a, a big fish in a small town you're in every band and you think, you know, you're the bee's knees. And then you move to a big city, which is what enabled me to do when I went to university. And you realise, no, actually, there's incredible musicians here, phenomenal. And you actually, there's a small fish in a big pond, you know, so. Great. Yeah. And, and, and so, I mean, music college can be a great, you know, sort of um, a, a big, bigger pond for musicians to mix. So is that where you started to sort of gather some contacts and networks and, and work out how you would like to progress your music career? Yeah. Yeah, it was. And uh, pretty much straight away, like the first day I got there, I was like, oh, let's start a band. I still had that mentality of, um, you know, I want to meet people. I want to get in a band straight away and let's make the most of this. And so I was, started a band straight away, sort of first week, I think I got there. And I was in um, probably too many bands really at the time. And we, you know, one night we could play rock music, another night jazz and soul, another night, whatever, just anything to get some money in really. At, at that time, Martin, did you have a particular favorite style of music or, or were you very open-minded to it? Or yeah, what, 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 was, what was your preference to play? Um, preference then was, uh, I was, I was really, it was going through a stage of, I was only a teenager, you know, 18, 19. So I was, I was going through that phase of, I think what we all go through is of self-indulgence really. and just being as technical as it possibly could be. And so I guess I was into jazz and that sort of thing really. Um, 
and not that that has to be self-indulgent, but it was that was just the path I was going down at the time. And so some nights I'd be playing like in a jazz trio or something like that. Um, and, you know, just for, for a meal, really, and 20 pounds, 50 pounds or something, just, just making ends meet, really. But, yeah, I enjoyed it at the time. Um, but, I mean, it does come a stage where you play those sort of gigs and it can be ridiculously self, self-indulgent. You can look around the room. I remember there's one moment where uh, I was looking at, I, I, you know, I'd get a call just from random people. Oh, can you just turn up here tonight? You know, if you're free, you know, what? I'd just turn up with my keyboard and just be some random gig with, with people you never met before. And one of these gigs, I, I looked at the guitarist and he was just, uh, <laughs> well, musically masturbating, should we call it? And, playing with his teeth and just really indulging himself. And um, I just sort of had this epiphany. I just thought, what the hell am I doing here? Because I looked at the crowd and there's about 10 people in the crowd. Nobody's paying any attention at all. (laughs) And it was just, yeah, I thought this isn't for me really. You know, I can indulge my own sort of ego, massage my own ego at home if I want my privacy in my own home. But yeah, it's not these people aren't here to to listen to this and yeah it was just it was just about that moment actually where i, I did get a call um because i suppose i've got a bit of a reputation for playing around town and you know being a bit of a not a session musician but just playing because i was, wasn't at that level yet of where i was playing for professional bands i was just just playing all around for everybody and uh one of my housemates at the time, because we lived in a big house, uh, there's about six of us in the house. One of the guys that was living in the house worked for uh, the Hacienda, the nightclub in Manchester, which was owned by New Order at the time. And um, he also worked at Rob's Records, which is the sort of their affiliate record label. And um, they um, were always in, you know, needing musicians to do things. And um, Bank Called Dubs were in the studio at the time recording the first album. And uh, yeah, they needed somebody to play pianos on one of their tracks and he recommended me. And so I got a call for that. It was just really natural and organic, which is great. And it was just the sort of call I needed really, because I was just getting a bit tired of doing all these gigs where you know I didn't one one day I'd be playing jazz, one day I'd be playing rock, and next day I'd be playing Irish music or something like that. And I was just I wish I could just do something that's solid and, and one project. And um and, and at the time Dubs wasn't that it, it was just you know can you just do the session in the studio for this one song. Um and I went down and met the the guys and they'd uh, had sort of a fair chunk of the album, first album done already. And I loved it. I thought it was great. And yeah, we just got on and played uh, piano on this one track called Here It Comes. And uh, yeah, that was it really. And then a few months later, I got another call from them saying, hey, we're going on the road. Do you want to come on tour with us? And so I was like, wow, great. Perfect. And then, uh, yeah, the next thing it all blew up really for the dub. So was world tour. Australia was the first place we came actually. Oh really? There you go. Mm. Um so you've you've seen a I bit of the country then. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, fortunately. From quite a young age as well, because I've, I've not really travelled too much at that point in my life. This was in the early, two, early 2000s, Martin? Mm. Yep. I think, yeah, it was like 99, 2000. Yep. That was yep. when we were recording and just sort of the first initial tours were going on. And it was, um, yeah, it was, I, can't, I think we played Metro, those kind of size venues, quite good venues, you know. Mm. And um, I'd always wanted to go to Australia. So that was incredible to go. The first time you go there, you're playing and performing there. It's, yeah, it's amazing. Good way to do it. So what did you, how did you find going from, um, you know, you're playing a, a session with these guys and, you know, play, playing a track on an album and, and then all of a sudden, as, to, to use your words, things just blew up and, and all of a sudden you're doing a world tour. What, what, how did you find that transition for yourself? Was it, was it just exciting and fun or were there some unexpected elements to it? How did you um, cope with that yourself? It's just really exciting. It's, it's one of those things where, um, you know, when I had that revelation of, to start a band when I was sort of 14 and I heard that drummer in the, when you go out from from that and the next day you're like, oh, we want to be on top of the pubs and we want to do a world tour and all these things. And it's the the flights of fancy of somebody in their youth going, oh, wow, wouldn't it be great to do all this and all that sort of stuff. And of so course, yeah. it, it was quite amazing, really, that that had happened. And so when I was in that moment, and, and I still am, I still do feel that. a lot of gratitude that, wow, they, they were my dreams when I was that age. And I got to fulfill them to a certain degree. It's something I could have never expected, really. That were just you hope for. You hope those things will come to fruition. But yeah, when you're on a plane going to Australia, playing at Metro, or so like, wow, okay, this is actually happening now. Yeah, hell of a hell of a buzz. And and so Martin, I mean, with Doves, you you know, you're sort of the unofficial fourth member, as quite often said. And you, I know you've done further sessions with them since. Uh, I know there was a bit of a hiatus there, but um, there was another album. I think you were involved in the the last album there a couple of years back. Yeah, I've been involved in. in a, I mean, it's actually probably the first album, which might be, you know, if I'm honest, probably my favourite one of those, Lost Souls, is um, it's, that's the one I'm involved in least, really, because it was just at the tail end when I met them. But I've been all, involved in all their other, their albums. Um, yeah, it's just sort of everything they do that they need keyboards on, really piano keyboards and I mean they're great producers three of them incredible I mean yeah. we've been very lucky to work with uh, oh, just unbelievable producers really because when you get a record deal and you've got a certain amount of um, heat and attention from media then the record company suddenly go oh, okay wow let, let's put you together with this producer and this producer and this producer so it was all the top producers in the world really that you that they were throwing their names at us and we were working with. And, um, and even since those early days, um, I could see that Jimmy, Andy and Jess, they're both, all three of them are, they're very technical and, um, and creative uh, production wise, not just as musicians, they really know how to make a record on their own. They don't need a producer. They don't, I don't think they ever have done. And um, I learned so much from them, from, from working with them not not just on a musical level but also technical in recording producing and 
yeah, the, so the, the last album, Universal One, is produced by them. And I was like, finally, wow, they've produced it themselves, you know, good. Yeah, no, they certainly continue to go from strength to strength. And um, yeah, I, I assume that that's still, there's still some future life in, in Doves, I'm guessing? Yeah, I certainly hope so. I mean, we're all, yeah. we're all like brothers, really, you know, we're just so close, we've been working together for, mm-hmm. you know, almost 25 years now. I mean, they've, those three have been working together longer, but... Um, yeah, we're just, we're like family, really. So it's, we're constantly in communication and it's, uh, yeah, unfortunately there's another bit of a hiatus at the moment. Uh, but hopefully, yeah, one day it will uh, see the light of day for us being on the road again. Great stuff. And then obviously, Martin, you mentioned the Hacienda and owned by New Order. So I'll make another probably wrong guess. Is that how the, the connection with Peter Hook came about? No, it wasn't actually. There you go. Because it, <laughs> it was a bit before my time at Hacienda, I have to say. Uh, I was in Manchester when it was still open, but it was the tail end of it. There. It wasn't its heady days, really. But, it's, but of course, you know, it was a ubiquitous name, isn't it, all around the world, the Hacienda. And, uh, and I was aware of Peter Hook. And, uh, I think I met him briefly with, with Doves. Um, we'd support New Order and um, I briefly met him, Peter. Um, and it, it was sort of, I think we'd just that kind of shuffle along when, uh, when you support bands and you kind of go, go into the dressing room, like, oh, hi, thanks for letting us support you, whatever. And everybody sort of grunts at you. It was one of those. And um, so that was the only sort of instance of meeting him I had really and um yeah it was it was in the Doves hiatus a few years back I was, I was having a walk actually in the hills with Jez the guitarist and Doves there was no phone signal and um which is you know lovely to have really isn't it that, that escapism but when I I think I just had a bit of uh, free time as well because there was the Doves hiatus so we were just chatting about what we were doing, what we were up to, and when I, by the time I'd got back down from the hill, uh, I turned my phone on, I got a, a message just saying, hey, do you want to join Peter Hook's band? So just out of the blue, really. And I think, I'm not sure exactly where it came from. I think it was a few things, really, how these things normally work is just the people you know, isn't it, really? And um, Cromie, who's a... Uh, sort of well-known road tech in Manchester. He's worked for everybody from Stone Roses to Prince. And uh, he was Dove's long-time uh, tech. And he, I think he was working for, or with Peter at the time, and he put my name in the ring. And I did know the, the drummer vaguely as well, Paul. So, yeah, it was just a, right, do you want to come on the road with us? We're on tour on Thursday, if you're free. And so I was like, yeah, great. And so I've been there with them five years now. That's amazing. And um, uh, that's quite a varied sort of le- level of sonic ground you're covering there between Doves and, and Peter Hook. Uh, and we and we also got to talk about Echo and the Bunny Minute at the moment. It, it sounds like you've had a, a, f- a few learning curves there. And I mean, even just talking then you, on Thursday, what, what sort of process was it to get your head around the content before you kicked off the tour? Yeah, well, that's a funny thing that any, with any musician that starts a new project or is, especially if you're sort of 
an additional member whereas all the band the rest of the band have been on tour for years and then it's just you're that that final piece of the puzzle everybody's always up to speed aren't they and mm. always seems to be the keyboard player for some reason but um yeah you just have to shut turn your phone off turn everything off and just listen just listen 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 to music just for hours and hours and hours more so than i think um than trying to learn it just get it in your head and just listen and listen to those tunes that's the way it seems to work for me anyway but um it was fortunately with that first peter hook gig it was um a festival and we weren't headlining so it was it was james actually were headlining them uh don't know if you know the band james uh and so we had a sound check so i didn't have any rehearsal either and you know the rest of the band are really lovely and they were like okay we'll put as many sort of joy division type of tracks in that we can without much keyboard to sort of give you a bit of a time to learn it or and um we did have a sound check luckily for that one but it's funny because um tim booth who's the singer for james he was going to come up on stage and play uh, and sing level terrace part with us and so he got on stage with us all. This is my first time getting on stage with the rest of the band as well. And so I have everybody, Tim turns around to me and goes, right, this is the first time I've played this track, sung it. Can you cue me in for when the vocals start? <laughs> just assuming that I'm like the musical director. <laughs> I was just like, well, this is the first time I've played it as well. Um, so that was a good introduction. But that was the first time I met Peter Hook since even when I briefly met him and when we were supporting the order that time, just on stage there. And it's a big crowd as well. It's like, I don't know, 10,000 people or something. Yeah, that, that, that's sort of a, a gig you're not going to forget in a hurry, particularly. That, that must, must be strange. I, I mean, I understand as, as side people that we don't often get to meet the artist prior to a gig, but that's still going to be a little bit challenging. Yeah, yeah, it was really, because uh, I didn't know what to expect. But to, I mean, I didn't know them but on a personal level, a professional level. It was just like, oh, hi, nice to meet you. Right, let's get on and do this gig. Um, yeah, which is uh, an experience, yeah, for sure. It's a great vote of confidence in your ability, though. The, the fact that they were very comfortable to have you there and, and uh, you know, confidently assumed you'd be fine, and obviously you were. So, um, uh, you know, well, I yeah. Take it as a compliment, right? Yeah, it's, a de I mean, it's definitely a leap of faith for, for them, wasn't it? Um, so yeah, that was I was very grateful for that opportunity, obviously. And uh, like I say, those they're quite simple. The tunes that was that were were in the set. So and it wasn't um, like a two-hour set or anything. It was sort of forty-five minutes an hour or something like that. So it wasn't too bad. And I'd had a few days, and I'd got my head around those tracks by that point. So it was okay. And that's an ongoing engagement. I mean, I know nothing's ever ongoing and permanent, but is that something that you're hoping to continue to work with Peter? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I've got a great relationship with Peter. Great. Great deal, great deal of admiration and respect for him. Um, and you, you realise what people have that sort of respect for him um, and reverence, really, when you travel around the world with him, which I've been fortunate to do for the last few years that people just treat him like a god, you know, and get very nervous around him. And it's a testament to his musicianship, really, and 
and what a lovely person he is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what a legacy of great music he's let, you know, he's, 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 he's given us all really. So for 40 years. Absolutely. And, and I mean, speaking of legacy, great music and an iconic sort of front person. Um, how, how did the Echo and the Bunnymen gig come about? Is that, is that a more recent one that's, that's popped yeah. up for you? Yeah. Yeah. That's a more recent one. So it, it was the sort of tail event, tail end of last year where, um, around the COVID sort of time. And this is when actually Doves, uh, we were supposed to be doing a tour in February, the UK tour. But I got a call from uh, management of Echo and the Bunnymen just saying, oh, hey, we just seen your availability. Because their keyboard player was thinking about leaving. Um, cause, you know, in, in lockdown, a lot of people had uh, these moments of like, oh, is this what I want to do, M- music industry? And it's a tough place to be in the music industry, which a lot of people found out to be. I mean, it's difficult just to make any kind of living out of the music industry nowadays, as you guys well know, um, especially with Spotify and everything like that. And it's... Yes, it's tough out there. Um, and I'm not saying that's his reasoning for moving on, but whatever his reason was, um, yeah, they gave me a call and I was, well, oh, I'm on tour with Dubs in February, so can't do it, but it's nice to get the call. Thanks ever so much. And uh, yeah, these things have a strange way of working themselves out, don't they, for for whatever reason that the Dubs tour got postponed and then cancelled. And, and I was just thinking to myself, I'd gone for a run and I was just thinking, oh, that's strange. You know, I could, could have actually done that tour now. And I got home and I got a call from that management company again going, oh, we know you're free now. Do you fancy doing that tour yeah. in February? And I was like, wow, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Tell me more about it. And they were like, right, okay, well, it's in three days' time. <laughs> there's a pattern here. There's a pattern. Yeah, there's a pattern. I was like, wow, am I that go-to guy that people come to when they've only got things at short notice? You, you know, if you need something done in three days, go to Martin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it was, so my anxiety was going through the roof at that point. And Because uh, if it would have been initially when it was the end of last year, I've had months to learn it all, you see. And that was like, oh, wow, that'd be great. you know. But when it's three days, it's like, oh, my God, wow, I've got to learn all these tracks. And, and, and there's a bit more co- complexity there too, isn't there, Mark, with Echo and the Bunnymen back catalogue? There's, there's a little, quite a bit of variety in there. Well, yeah, not only there is there a variety, it's very much a, um, a player's gig, really. Because um, mm. with Doves and, and Peter Hook, it's, there's a lot of samples that I'm triggering um, and sort of simple, simple things. And... I mean, for dubs in particular, it's sometimes like I'll have 88 notes samples to play and I won't even be playing a single familiar keyboard line. I'll be just triggering loads of different things and people just think, assume I'm playing piano or something, but I'm like on Kingdom of Rust, for instance, uh, there's, there's an orchestral part and it's really uh, integral to the piece and we didn't want to put it on backing track and Andy, the drummer, he hates playing to a backing track or a click or anything. Like, wants it all free, which is great, you know, because it makes it, you can speed it up, slow it down and do different things with it. But so in order to do that, I had to sample the whole orchestra. So it's on my 88 note 
weighted keyboard. Every single note on that keyboard is a different orchestral sample, which I'm just going through and have to learn. Oh, that C sharp isn't a C sharp. It's it will play this sort of portamento riff, and it, it's just it, which is fun in itself as well. But with Echo and the Bunnymen, it is very much you know playing piano and strings and organ, and uh, so it's it's fun. It's kind of going back to my roots, really, of, of just playing and playing in a band and. Yeah, very fulfilling, I, I imagine, um, being able to do that. And with all the variety and, you know, talking about going to your roots where, where you, you were playing anything and everything and, and obviously your, your professional career has been really diverse as well, I'm really interested in your solo work with, uh, you know, the Rebelski, which is it's like a, a dance, trance, electronica sort of a sound. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in, in what drew you to that and... Uh, yeah, what, what informed that that part of your journey? Well, yeah, yeah, thanks for asking, Paul. I was, because being keyboard players, which you are, um, when I was first getting into, if I can tell you a bit of the history about it, is into playing. It's, there is, well, if you're a guitarist, for instance, you've got Jimmy Page or Jimi Hendrix, Eddie Van Halen, all these mm -hmm. cool, cool people to, to learn how to be technical. When you're a keyboard player, it's like uh, Richard Clayderman, <laughs> you know, just all these, there's nobody, there's, there really oh, isn't anybody. You only had to mention Liberace, Martin, you would have talked about <laughs> Richard Clayderman, that's classy. <laughs> exactly, so it's like, well, I don't want to play like Richard Clayderman, thanks, so who have I got? So then you start exploring other avenues and um, electronic music, really is the one that sort of immediately comes in. And when I heard Kraftwerk, I was like, wow, okay, this is, I wanna play about Kraftwerk and, and learn how to program and do all these sort of things and get all these sounds. And so I was very into electronic music from an early age, from all that. And then when I formed that band, when I was about 14, I, um, I got into house music, like 90s house music. Italian house and uh, just really simple piano house music. Um, and yeah, it's just it's stuck with me ever since really resonated that kind of music because it's not too, uh, it's just fun to play really energetic and um, quite instant and you can pick it up very quickly. And yeah, I mean, as my, but sort of taste progressed, you know, going to things like Aphex Twin and Boards Canada. And, but yeah, the early days, it was just, just very simple electronica, really. So, I mean, I think you've actually identified a future creative project using a Yamaha Porter sound to do a Richard Clayderman <laughs> cover. God, imagine, imagine. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't name a track of his, could you? No, no. Oh, he probably cleared a loon or something like that. It'd be, it'd be something like okay. that. Um, <laughs> so speaking of diverse playing and, and rigs, I can imagine with all these artists you're playing with, do you have some go-to keyboards? And I'm obviously loving, you know, I'm thinking it's, it's a whirly in the background and um, I'm not sure what the other large keyboard is behind you. I'm fascinated. It looks like it's an older analog as well. 
Yeah, Juno 60. Oh, yeah, there you go, Juno 60. So, yeah. but what, what, what are your go-to keyboards? Do they vary between each of those artists you work with or you've got some fairly standard items? Well, yeah, this is maybe controversial for you, but yeah, I tend to not use any of the original sort of bits of kit live. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't use think that's controversial. I think that's sensible. Yeah, <laughs> well, this is it. Agreed. <laughs> because I don't know, people can go, oh, right, why aren't you using the original sort of profit or the original mini move and all this on, on the things? And it's like, well, because they go out of tune. And, you know, if they get dropped on tour, they're, not, they're heavy for one thing and all these sorts of things. Or who's going to take a Hammond B3 with them on tour? The Rolling Stones. You know, if you've got the Rolling Stones budget, then yes, of course, you're going to do that. But otherwise, you've got to be practical. And with the way computers are now with VSTs you can just recreate anything you want and I'll defy anybody to to tell the difference really just using their ears that is that's right and so so you are tending to use things like is I don't know whether it's main stage or gig performing you tending to use a software-based system yes yeah, yeah absolutely so from from quite early days of doves really because we um, I mean I, I know you you were thinking about asking me about musical mishaps but <laughs> there's plenty of music mishaps because of technology. And so it was mainly using old, older equipment, really hardware that would go down rather than the software. And so it forced us to move to software. And since we did, it's, it's been pretty good, really, I have to say. Using MainStage, I love it. So, so any, any go-to um, soft synths or plugins that you use that, you know, you'd be lost without? Yeah, so many. I mean... Uh, all the Archeria stuff's great. Just everything they do is really good. Spectrasonics, you know, the Keyscape, brilliant. Really good. All the, talking about, you don't need to take a word that's around until you when you go that. Um, they're just so good. Because, you know, if I took that, I mean, I'd be really worried about that as well because it's got sentimental value and everything. Um, so, but if it, you know, they don't go out of tune, obviously. And if this goes out of tune, you have to get a soldering iron out. People, got to, you know, your road crew is going to look at you like, what? I'm not going to solder an out mid-gig to tune that for you. So um, with all this diversity and, you know, as David said, just the different artists you work with and, you know, and, and your own solo stuff as well, is there anything that's stuck with you that's, that's a lesson that you'd, you'd pass on to other people aspiring to... I don't know, get into, get into touring, get into, get into playing live to make a success of it. Is, is, you know, what, have you, what have you picked up that, that would be a, a valuable lesson for other keys players? Yeah, well, yeah, that's a nice philosophical question there. Um, many, many things really. Uh, I mean, number one, don't let your ego get in the way. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's good to go through those stages of being... Uh, really technical and because everybody's got to learn and get up to a certain standard, obviously. But then in a band setting, especially if it's a rock band, you suddenly start free form doing a jazz set that everybody just, you know, the drummer throws a drumstick at you, stop it. Mm. <laughs> I quickly learned that with doves actually. It was great. So because I'd be, been coming from these jazz gigs, you know, then I'd turn up and I'd go on a doves tour and it was, anything I'd slightly start noodling with, but just get a th drumstick thrown at me like, oh, stop it, you, and it's, 
<laughs> and it's good grounding, really, because um, it can be self-indulgent. It's got to be in the appropriate setting for all those sorts of things. And when you record yourself and you hear yourself back, especially in a rock environment, because it's not about you, you know, you're the, for a lot of, um, especially the early Doves tracks, it'd be sort of like padding and soft pads as the beds behind. And it's, it's one of those things where as if, like people would sort of say, oh, I didn't even hear anything you played. But, it's, but if you don't play, then people, oh, right, wow, I really notice this massive chasm where you'd stop playing. And so you just have to get your ego in check and things like that. Mm. Mm. That's actually so a great, yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, serving the song, I, mean, I suppose. And, yeah. Serving the song, yeah. Mm. And your fellow musicians as well. It's not about you. It's like mm. a, being in a football team or something. You've, it's not about the striker. They get the headlines, the striker, don't they? Like the singer does get the headlines. Mm. Um, but the keyboard players, like the defender, the, just just holding holding the team together and passing the ball around. And Yeah, someone's got to play left back and make sure that, uh, you know, no goals get scored. It's a very important position. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but sometimes those goals do get scored and you've alluded to it already, Martin. Tell us about your best train wreck. Where where, where haven't you been able to fulfil the duties you would like to? Oh, dear. Well, it's always technical things, really, about equipment letting you down. Um, I briefly mentioned a, a Doves thing earlier, but it was, that was hard. That was, a, that was a ban. I'll give you a couple, I think. There was... Um, you'll indulge me there was we, it was our first gig or might have been our first gig with dubs in new york and it was we've been hotly tipped as this sort of great band and to see you know um and so just everybody was there david bowie was there apparently so we were like wow okay bowie's in the crowd amazing and then lo and behold halfway through the gig all the gear went down and we were using akai samplers <laughs> So that was before we were using main stage. It didn't even exist at that point. And I think I had a few Akai samplers and Jez did as well. He was sort of triggering it by foot, his foot pedals and they all went, decided to go down the SCSI interfaces and all these sorts of things. Went to go off stage with our head in our hands. Oh God, everybody was there. And it took about half an hour to, for the crew to sort it out. And that was painful. What else? on a personal level um it, it was technology again it was <clears throat> excuse me we were playing a festival and for whatever reason it was in the uk we hired all our equipment in maybe ours was getting shit around the world or something I'm not sure but anyway it was it, the days before i was using in-ear monitors and um so it was using wedges and it was equipment i didn't know and we didn't get sound checks because it's festival. So there was a line check, but I wasn't involved in that because it was the, unfortunately we had a crew to do that. Um, but we got on stage and for the first sort of three songs, um, I didn't hear anything. I couldn't hear anything, which can invariably happen, you know, at a festival. I mean, I suppose that's another one for the life lesson, really. Know what to do when things go wrong. Um, in music, that is. But um, anyway, so the first three songs, I didn't hear a note I played at all. 
and all I could hear was sort of the drums really, couldn't hear the vocals or anything. And by the time, we didn't have our own monitor engineer with us either. Um, and by the time I did hear what I was playing, it was just all out of key, completely out of key. <laughs> and it was, I think it was like Reading Festival as well. It was, you know, it was a big festival. And, um, and I realized it was, it had been a it had hired, it was a hired keyboard and it was, a, it was some piano thing, like a, I don't know what it was, it was some like Clavinova or some, some Yamaha thing. Can't quite recall, but it was, it'd been transposed. So whoever previously hired it had transposed it, saved it. And it wasn't really obvious. There wasn't a big, on keyboards nowadays, there's a big transpose button, probably because it's happened to so many keyboard players. Red lights, the transpose up or down. And that was, it was in a box and you had to go through menu and find it all these, so much so that I had to call the tech over. And he got the manual out of the side of the stage and we were both trying to, whilst the gig was going on. Yeah, it was painful. I don't know what's scary, the fact that um, you had to live through that on stage or the fact it took three songs before and no one had told you. I <laughs> know, oh, this is the thing, isn't it? And, it was, um, and so then when I did finally realise, um, <laughs> and I told the tech and he's looking through the menu. So then I was thinking, okay, well, whilst he's doing that, I'm going to have to just play it by ear, transpose it by ear. Um, until he can figure it out. And, um, and then the funny thing is about these sort of things though, is because you're panicking at the time. And I was, I was quite young at the time. So you just, Oh my God, this, and you just panicking in your head. And then afterwards I said to the front of the house guy, God, wow, that was awful. Wasn't it? Well, train wreck. And he's like, Oh, what, what happened? You know, not even he knew. So you can blow these things out of all proportion, can't you? If the front of house engineer doesn't even notice, then you know you're fine, aren't you? I, you know, I think that's such a such a good message for for anyone who plays music live. You, you, something goes wrong, and you think it's the end of the world. It, it very rarely is, and it's it's amazing how often people don't even notice. So I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it well it is. It's uh, there's something zen to be able to do it, isn't there? To be able to to just go, well, okay, you know, it's happened, but just move on. Because things do, do happen, you know, it's life, isn't it? Mm. Um, and you're not a robot, but I mean, the, people normally notice mistakes when all the musicians just go, oh, and point to everybody. <laughs> That's really obvious. But if they don't, then nobody will notice. I mean, yeah, so I mean, true. Thing, Particularly you, you can make moments of mistakes as well, though, with bands, and they, they can be a real, because when things are too robotic, like I mentioned that Dove's um, equipment breakdown, I think. The, I mean, the crowd actually loved it. I mean, we're all panicking, going, oh my God, the gear, are we going to get back on stage? Um, there's all these celebrities in the crowd and everything like that. It's all hyped up to be this amazing gig and it's just been a train wreck. But then after you have that break and you come back on stage, it's almost like you meant it because the crowd are willing you on and it's, it makes it a mm. moment in the set. Yeah, I've often thought in some ways that there's a couple of benefits to not that you ever want anything to go wrong, but one is it no. makes the gig memorable for the audience because it's like they go home and, oh, you wouldn't believe what happened. And 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 the other thing is if you handle it with grace and aplomb, I, I believe it's a really, you know, like you said, Martin, the crowd come on, they come along with you on the journey because look, we love these guys and they had a problem and they, they got through it and you know, the, the set was still great. And so I think it can really bond the crowd to you when these unusual things happen. Yeah, you, they're on your generally on your side, unless you're at a festival and they're seeing another band and they're bottling you off. 
you know that's that would be awful obviously but and you you wouldn't want it to happen but when it does especially your own gig they're generally they've got your back you know they're, they're there for you so um we we have a, a standard uh, group of questions that we that we ask all our guests martin and then the the what you just answered one of them so thank you great great stories there with the uh, the train wrecks another one is if you were to tag another keyboard player who's the keyboard player maybe someone you admire that uh, you know you would love to see them interviewed on this podcast so uh, people could learn a bit more about them who would that be mm. oh just uh, trying to think a couple uh cory henry i mean he's yes. uh, <laughs> what a player here oh yeah I don't know too much about I don't know too much about him, but when I've heard him play, it's wow, wow, it's effortless, very soulful, graceful. Heard him play a, a, a solo, and it was on a terrible synth. It was, you know, like a recorder sound on a DX7 or something, and he he made that sound incredible. So yeah. I mean, Paul and I are only talking in recent weeks about Snarky Puppy and um, Lingus or whatever. Just watching, just yeah, he's a freak of nature, that guy. Yeah. Mm. Just natural talent. Yeah. Good tag. I like it. Um, and then the dreaded one, uh, Martin, Desert Island Disc, your five albums. And we, I know we did give you a heads up on this one. So um, I, I'm not sure how much stress it caused you, but lay them, lay them on us. Yeah, it doesn't cause me any stress really. Because it's, I mean, those things are really fluid, aren't they? Because if you ask me tomorrow, I'd have a different set of albums. But uh, yeah, I mean... The one that always really resonates with me is Steve Reich, uh, Music for 18 Musicians. If you're aware of that. Good call, yep. Yeah. Yep. Amazing. Um, I mean, did you want me to sort of elaborate further or do you want me to just go through? The... Whatever you would like to do, yeah. Whatever these albums mean to you, go for it. Yeah, well, with that one, it was just really life. As soon as I heard it, it was one of those life-affirming, wow. And because I am in elect into electronica, um, I thought it was electronic the first time I heard it. I didn't realize it's actually, you know, people standing in a room playing with that unsequenced. Especially the voices, it sounds synthetic, like a synth playing all these polyrhythms. So that blew my mind. And that's probably out of all the ones on the list, that's the one that I just can always go back to. Every time I hear it, I can hear something different in that. It just, um, the, the doors. And you may be controversial, I'll say LA woman. And the reason being is because uh, Riders on Storm, being a keyboard player, which I'm sure you'll agree with. And because, you know, earlier when I was talking about other guitarists getting into having wealth of people, talent to draw from, a Jimi Hendrix and such, uh, Ray Manzarek was, was that person for me, really. As soon as I heard Riders on the Storm, I was like, oh my God, wow. Great pick. Yeah, no argument to you. Uh, what else? Uh, Herbie Hancock, Headhunters. So that was another one of those things where um, as soon as you hear he's playing, it's just effortless. Anyway, it is. Uh, and it was uh, it was funny, actually, when I first heard that album, a friend of mine had it on vinyl and he, he brought it around to my house. And he played it too quick. It was like, we played it 45. And he, I think it was his dad's. And he was like, oh, check out my dad's record. But when you speed it up, it sounds like a dance record. Because he knew he was into dance music. 
so we thought we'd come up with this great um, concept. But yeah, what an album! Incredible, great player. Um, Aphex Twin, selected Ambient Works, eighty-five to ninety-two. That's that's the first one. Which uh, <laughs> I say that with a wry smile because he said because it says eighty-five to ninety-two. But he would have probably been about eight years old, wouldn't he? Then about to say, yeah, that's that's early for him. Yeah, I'm not sure but, of his age, but he, yeah, you think, well, okay. There's so many urban myths and legends about FX Twin, which is part of his charm, isn't it? Really great album, though, because I do prefer his more ambient and melodic harmonic pieces. Because yeah, he does have a lot of experimental stuff, and I've got a bit of it on vinyl. And yeah, it's I, I tend towards the ambient as well. Mm. I mean, I appreciate all the, the dissonant stuff as well. Yeah. Come to Daddy and things like that. It's great, but yeah, I probably wouldn't listen to it too much. Whereas that selected ambient works something I'll go back to. Um, what else? Uh, Craftwork, Man Machine. I mean, that's another controversial one, I suppose, to pick Man Machine, but. Because I guess it's the sort of most commercial one, isn't it, really? But just, yeah, hearing it as, at a young age, hearing um, the model and robots. Loved it. Great, great, great picks. I love it. A lot of variety there. And, yeah, really really good picks. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Talking about Ray Manzarek, by the way, going back to the doors, is I had this moment with... Uh, you know, because recently I just learned the uh, Echo and the Bunnymen track, and I could uh, hear a lot of Ray Manzarek's playing sort of it influences going on through that. And so that's why I was really enjoyed playing those tracks. And I was, uh, I remember one day I was learning, I'm a bit bearing in mind, three days, but there's a track called Bed Bugs and Ballyhoo. I'm not sure if you're aware of it. And I was listening to it and I was thinking, wow, somebody's really ripped off. Um, Ray Manzarek here playing this track. Just sat, whoever played keyboards on that album. And I mean, but they've got it, I have to, you know, salute them because they've they've got it down, they've got his playing down, they've got his sound, it's something Fox Continental, and it's just his style, it's really everything going for it. And the next day in rehearsals, uh, I, I said this to Will, the guitarist, he's a founding member. Um, and he was like, you realize that is Ray Manzarek. He played on the album. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I was like, no way. Wow. Okay. This is amazing. And for our non UK listeners, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Martin. So, uh, Echo and the Bunny Men were huge in the UK, like really huge in the UK. As, uh, is it fair to say they're one of the new wave bands? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, I think they've had a, a, a decent following in the US. In Australia, not so well known, but it's, it's hard to uh, underestimate the, the level of influence they had and just how significant their back catalogue is. And even uh, four or five years ago, Martin, I think they did the Transformed songs. I've forgotten the name of the album where they basically, from what I could tell, re-recorded some of their greatest hits and they're just amazing. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I mean, it, 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 yeah, in the UK, they've always been big and in America, actually, they are pretty big because yeah, Killing Moon, for instance, has been using quite a few feature film soundtracks. So, yeah, they've got a big following over there. Yeah. I love that Ray Manzarek thing, though. I was just, I was chuffed to, to find out that. 
Yeah. Well, no wonder they got his style exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, it was re- it was a revelation, really, because you know, growing up, trying to sort of emulate him and taking a lot of inspiration from his play, yeah. to then sort of be treading in his footsteps, really. Absolutely. All, yeah. All it's an amazing later. thing. Yeah, it's yeah, incredible. It's, it's, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing, and it's a, it's a. I think, um, you know, one of the, the nice things about when you think about some of the bands and the work you've done, Martin, is it, it's you know with with seminal bands, you know, these bands that have that have meant a lot to a lot of people, and and you're you're working with them and, and still bringing that that enjoyment to people when you when you're playing live, which is, I think, an exciting thing. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm very fortunate to work with these people. You know, is. Yeah, enjoying it. A lot of great yeah, well, yeah, well, um, it's a, it's, it, like I said, it's, it's a great thing. And, and another great thing is our, we, we're going to finish the podcast today with our quick fire ten. So, Martin, we've got ten oh, okay. rapid fire questions, and we're looking for some rapid fire answers. And I'll let David ask you the first question. All right, Martin, stereo or mono? Stereo. Sitting or standing? Ooh, wow. Both. Cool. Can I, yeah. can I say both? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. yeah for sure. Yep. Um, Kitas, sexy or an abomination? No, abomination. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think I already know the answer to this one, but I'll, um, I'll run it past you. Transpose button or adjust on the fly? <laughs> Just the just an obvious transpose button there that's there <laughs> without needing the, the use of a manual really, but uh, yeah. yeah, to be able to, use, to be able to do both. Um, an an extend keyboard stand or anything else? An extend like oh an extend yeah yeah an extend. Although they are really wobbly, aren't they? Yeah, it's like they a design flaw. Yeah, yeah, design fault with them. They collapse. I don't tell me that. Well, they're supposed. Well, they, there's lots of videos you can watch with, of them collapsing. I've never had it happen to me, but it does happen. Oh god, that'd be awful. Uh, last gig they you look, attended. They look as cooler, a, yes. Oh, yeah, true. So last gig you attended as an audience member. Ooh, I is asking a question there. Um, you know what? It's been a long time. Like, I'm Quite thinking recall. Richard Clayderman. Is he still playing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were there as well. <laughs> um, oh, I don't know because as an actual sort of paying yeah. person, to sort of, wow. I honestly, I don't know. That's a difficult one. It's not an unusual answer either, Martin. It's surprising how many people say that. Yeah, because so busy yourself. Okay, well, this is it, and it's sort of on, on your day off. It's the last thing you want to do is go to. That's right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So then let's talk about. I wanted, you... I'll tell you okay. what. I did want to go and see the band Low the other week in Manchester Cathedral. Oh. That was when I intended to go, but I wasn't feeling too uh, great, so I didn't end up going to that one. But I would have loved to have seen that. Best thing about live gigs when you're playing? <sighs> well, the audience just. Uh, you know they're essentially paying your wages, aren't they? And it's mm-hmm. and without them, it would just be a sound check or rehearsal. So, yeah, it's they make or break the gig, really. The energy that you feel from the crowd. 
worst thing about live gigs? Um, the audience. Be <laughs> <laughs> cool. cool. No, I don't know. Um, there's no real doubt. Just it was more about just being tired and the travelling and you know not being able to get enough sleep and all these sort of things. Really. Name one thing you'd like to see invented, Martin, that would make your life as a keyboard player easier. Uh, an obvious transpose button. <laughs> or eradicate them completely, transpose buttons. So that's, yeah. that option isn't available. Nobody can transpose anything. <laughs> All right, last one. Red keyboards, yes or no? Yeah, yeah, I'd say yeah. Colour's good. I mean, I'm yep. pretty monochrome, as you can see. <laughs> uh, no, that's great. Yeah, for sure. Yellow keyboards, wasp, and things like that. They're awesome. Yeah, they are. <laughs> They're beautiful. Um, Martin, can't thank you enough. That was a brilliant chat. Really appreciate it. And, and it's just amazing, as we've said a couple of times, the diversity of what you're involved with, your own solo work, and, and let alone everything else you're doing. Uh, and I'm assuming it's a busy year, rest of the year coming up for you. What, what have you got planned briefly over the next few months? Um, well, just having a couple of days uh, relaxing at the moment and then packing to go on tour in France um, with Pete Hook. And so I'm, I'm busy with Pete Hook really for the rest of the year. I've got wow, that's great. a fr French tour, mm. festivals throughout the UK, um, a few European jaunts as well. Going to Australia, New Zealand, oh. Yeah, oh. Your neck of the woods in November that is. Yeah, might where, be time where are for you a follow up, yeah, follow up into a follow up interview, Paul. Yeah, that'd be good. We might uh, interview you live. Where, where yeah, are you going? Just the main cities, really. The main drag: um, Melbourne, a couple of nights there, uh, Sydney, where else? Perth, Adelaide. Can't quite record somewhere, but oh, that's covered most of them. And uh, if you're going to Brisbane, you've covered pretty much all of oh, them. Oh yeah, that's right, Brisbane as well. Yeah. Thank you very much. And sorry to our Darwin and um, Canberra listeners. Um, Tassie, ta ta Tassie, Tassie listeners as well. Don't get to play in Canberra very often, but I think I've played it once. It's 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 a bit it's a bit like playing in Washington DC, Martin. It doesn't tend to be a huge uh, rock venue. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a capital, political capital. Love our Canberra listeners though. Because where are you going? Hey, I played. I played there recently, David. It's all right there. Don't, don't knock the Canberrans. Right. They're good people. <laughs> That's uh, right. Are you based in Canberra then? No, no, I'm based in Adelaide. So, uh, ah, okay, great. Hopefully, we'll be able to see you come through. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah great. you'll have to come to the show. No, but I'd love, love to. to. So, mm. No, Martin, absolute pleasure. Um, yeah, again, onwards and upwards, and um, we will hopefully speak with you soon and ha have a great rest of the year. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me, David and Paul. Love that one, Paul. Lots of interesting insights, and um, Martin's a guy with a great sense of humour as well. Yeah, I loved his dry, uh, dry, I should say, British. I was trying to say I loved his dry British sense of humour. He's a, a really nice guy, and you know, a lot of the guys we talk to, David, are just so giving with their thoughts and ideas. And Martin's obviously a busy touring professional, and it's just good to hear some stories and and how he got into it and 
his philosophy on approaching it. It's great. That's right. And, and also, uh, it's amazing after 51 episodes, we can still get people in the train wreck segment um, exceed previous train wrecks. So we've had a few <laughs> transpose errors, but to actually have three songs of playing in the wrong key and being unaware of it, that that takes the cake so to date for transpose um, train wrecks. Love yeah, it. Well, I love, the, I love the perfect storm of your keyboard being out of tune and your monitor not working so you don't know it's out of tune. I mean, that's, exactly. that's delightful. That is delightful. Exactly. So, um, you know, that was great. And I just want to give a quick shout out to our gold and silver supporters. So, again, uh, Greg at the Core Chrome User Group on Facebook. Core Chrome users need to check that group out. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, Brother Paul Brown from the Water Boys, who's also been a previous guest. So, Brother Paul Rocks, and I know he's on tour at the moment with Mike Scott, Scott from the Water Boys doing a, a duo tour. Um, and we've got a new uh, silver supporter, Tammy Catcher of Tammy's Musical Stew. If you're a big fan of 80s music in particular and 90s and love seeing some really well put together and curated collections of music, check out, uh, just Google Tammy's, Tammy's Musical Stew and that'll come up. And also finally, the musicplayer.com forums. And actually just as an extra one, Tammy um, is part of a great Facebook group called Keyboard Players in Cover Bands. And so I, I, Music Player, our listeners will be very familiar with. There's two great ways, if you're a keyboard player, really mixing with a whole bunch of other keyboard players. If you like forums, and I know I do, I love the whole forum approach. I find a little bit more, less spontaneous on Facebook, but more substantive. But also um, the Facebook group is brilliant. Just so you know, there, there's two great ways to mix with other keyboard players. Can't recommend both of them highly enough. I think you'd agree, Paul. Oh, yeah. The, the keyboard playing hive mind out there is such a powerful resource to tap into. And the things I've learned from the, both of those resources, actually, the, the, the forum and the, the Facebook group are incredible. And it's actually influenced gear purchases and, and certain decisions I've made. So it's, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And we're, we're, we're delighted that there's a, an affiliation with our humble little podcast. Today. That's right. No, absolutely. So yes, we'll be back again in a fortnight or so. Um, but just a reminder, we do love to hear from you. And there's a few means by which you can do that. So our website is www.keyboardchronicles.com on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash keyboard chronicles, Twitter at the keyboard chr1, and then our good old fashioned email address, which is editor at keyboardchronicles.com. Uh, I know we always mention it, but if you'd like to become an official supporter, we do have a Patreon account where for the price of a coffee a month, you can help us keep this little beast afloat. And again, thank you to a couple of uh, uh, some other people that have come on board with Patreon in the last month. We really do appreciate it. And it allows us to pay those podcast hosting fees and, you know, Paul's jet fees and drug habits and all that sort of stuff. So it is really appreciated. Doesn't pay for itself, David. Does not pay for itself. <laughs> That's right. Um, and again, a huge thank you to you, Paul, for joining me. I know it's been a very busy few weeks for you. So always great to have you here. Uh, pleasure. And uh, most importantly, thanks to you all out there for listening or watching, and we hope to see you back here next episode.